we lived in a small apartment in the city in St. Louis where I was going to seminary. Um, it was one of the 100-year-old brick constructions, kind of two stories with four units. And uh, our landlords loved us and wanted us to stay and so went out of their way to take really good care of the apartment. Uh, and at one point, something happened to the, the door, the lock. I don't remember what it was, but uh, there was some problem. And uh, the landlord sent out a handyman to repair the door. Uh, it was in the spring of the year. It was one of the two or three days in St. Louis where it's nice to be outside. Uh, so I was sitting on the front porch uh, doing some reading for a class. And uh, the handyman showed up. It was a new handyman that I had not seen before, a young man about my age, uh, maybe a little bit older. So he started working on the door and scraping off this and adjusting that, and we got to chatting, and uh, I soon found out that he had just passed through uh, a really, really rough patch in his life, Um, but that he had just become a Christian that in the midst of it, a friend had reached out to him and, and shared some of the good news, and he read some passages in the Bible. And he said to me, as we were talking along, he started saying, I feel like in the past couple weeks, all of a sudden, the world has turned to color. The, 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 the greens are, are more green, and, and the, the flowers have, have more color, and it's as if everything has more meaning have you ever heard of anything like that before? Is, is this normal? Does this make sense? I said to him, yes. I think, so. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and he said, you know, I, it's not as if I've never noticed before. They've always been there, but somehow I didn't notice. Uh, the, the trees have always been there, but now it's, they're just, it's, it's like everything has come to color. And he kind of repeated the analogy. And I said, it's because for the first time you know that there's one who made them. And you know him. And he said, yes, that's right. He had, I think, for the first time, seen the world the way it really is. The way uh, that for many of us, I think we've actually grown too old to continue to see the world the way it really is. Uh, if you take a look in the front of your worship folder on page four, uh, there's a couple quotes there, the thoughts on the gospel section. The middle one is from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote this. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. What I want to take a look at this morning is two episodes in the beginning of Luke, in the beginning of the Advent message of Jesus coming, where an angel comes to them and gives them good news. Good news about the way the world really is. 
And both of those people have trouble hearing the good news. One of them hears it a little better than the other. So I want to take a look this morning is what, just briefly, because you could do a whole Advent sermon series on this, what is so good about that news and so unbelievable? And I want to take a look at what makes it hard to believe. I want to take a look at how maybe it is that Mary was able to respond so well. Well, the first thing to take a look at this news, the news of the gospel, the good news is, quite frankly, that the fairy tale world, the world, as Frederick Buechner puts it, the world where light meets darkness and the light wins is actually the real world. I want you to take a look at a couple of the things that the angels have to say to these two individuals. In verse 13, the angel speaks up to Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. There's bullet point number one. There's a God in heaven who has heard your prayers. He's heard the prayers of Zechariah. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. That when angels come to people to declare the work of the Lord, when God is at work, when he works amongst the people, it's always a work that involves Joy and gladness. If you've been around very long, you know that it's not always exclusively joy and gladness. That those things often come mixed with pain. But that doesn't erase the fact that it is, it is fundamental to the nature of the work of the Lord. You know that he's at work when you, when you smell and taste. <clears throat> joy and gladness is being produced here. Verse 17, he says that this child is to be born will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There's two things there. There's, there's the message about relationships being restored, fathers and children. In fact, that's actually the way the Old Testament ends. The last words in the Old Testament in the book of Micah are a prophecy that someone is going to come and restore the, fa- the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children of the fathers. And then this is the first thing we hear in the New Testament. Here it is. It's about to happen. Relationships, even the most broken ones, now have the potential, the possibility to be restored. And in fact, they, they will be restored before we're done. And there's the message of all those of God's people And even those in the world who aren't God's people being turned around and brought back to him that they might experience this restoration, this joy and gladness. The disobedient to them will come the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Uh, After receiving this news, both Zechariah and Mary break out into song. Todd will be talking about Mary's song next week. Um, And the same themes show up there over and over again. Mary begins... My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's exactly what he says happens. Rejoicing. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Later she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is another hallmark. This is another sign of the work of God that those who are low those whom the world did not respect or recognize or understand get lifted up and brought in the presence of God, brought into this this joy and this grace, this peace and this mercy. 
And sometimes those who are high, who thought they had it all together, who thought they were right, sometimes they, they get brought low. Although in the gospel, I would say, even then, it's always so that they can be brought to a place of lowness to receive this same joy and mercy. Joy comes, mercy and salvation comes in a way we did not expect. Light meets darkness and light wins. The low is raised up. The world of the gospel, the world of Advent, the world of Christmas, is the world where fairy tales come true. Where all of those good things that we've always been thrilled to see in the movies and great stories that brought tears to our eye and a joy to our hearts, that, in the world of the gospel, is the real world. It's the world where old people have children, and God himself becomes a man, and as the angel himself says, nothing is impossible with God. The angels proclaim that the world that we did not expect, the world that we, we dare to even hope in, is more real than the world that we see from day to day. It's the world of the fairy tale come true, and we discover that in those moments that we have with the best movies and the best stories, when tears of joy come, that those are actually the most real moments that we have. To enter into the joy of Advent means to enter into believing that the impossible can come true, that all things are possible with God. To see the world, as my friend the handyman in St. Louis saw it, with the colors turned up bright, where all of the leaves and trees were mated by a creator, and he himself has come in the form of a person to be with us. As the Bible says over and over again, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So what keeps us from entering into or receiving or accepting the joy, the hope of this message? Well, the first thing I would say is that if you are here this morning and, uh, and you're not quite sure about this, this Christian message, you're not sure if you would call yourself a Christian, I would point out that the easy and hard thing about Christianity is that to receive this joy, you must first become, become low. It is the joy that comes to those who have been raised up from a low state. Even Mary says that she is but a humble servant in need of salvation. It is... A long theme in the Bible that, that the Lord took uh, Abraham, who was just one of several sons in a no-name family in a no-name town, and called him and brought him out and gave him, after a long journey, a family and a name and an inheritance and a God, that he would be his God and his people. Uh, he's the God who came to David and raised him up from being a shepherd. God actually says to David at one point, I took you from following behind sheep. When I found you, you followed sheep butts. And I have made you to be a king and prince in Israel and loved you with a great love. It's the God who raises Mary, who, yes, is descended from David, but that's like a thousand years ago. She's, she's, she's a nobody in a nobody town. And he picked her out of his own mercy to raise her up and give her the dignity of giving birth to himself. It's the God who comes to Zechariah, a no-name priest, worn out in his years without child and no dignity, and gives him a role to play as well. It's the God who, uh, who raised me up uh, from being an awkward 
junior high student in a broken family in an out-of-the-way state uh, and has brought me to the place uh, and has loved me through a great mother, I might add, uh, to the place where I could actually stand in front of you, his people, and have a chance to share his word. But to receive this joy means to receive lowliness, uh, to be one who is willing to become low, to experience our need. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke, I think, makes clear that if you're a human being, you qualify for lowliness, uh, that we all have uh, a desperate need. Uh, Herod, in this story, is an example of one who is not willing to receive the joy that comes with lowliness. Uh, that the wise men come to him and give him the news that the, that the great one has been born, the one who's going to redeem us and make all sad things come untrue. And if Herod had been willing to receive the joy of lowliness, I have no doubt that he would have immediately hopped off his throne, run across town to desperately find the young one and to receive that joy. But instead, his response is to try and hold on to some sort of joy that comes from your own power and strength. And he is ultimately left outside, lonely and bitter, with neither joy nor family uh, nor friends. As one pastor once said, God made enough glory for Jesus and enough joy for everyone else. And if we're willing to enter into the glory that belongs only to Jesus, we can enter into the joy that comes from loving him. The other thing I take note of, especially for those of us who are Christians or have been Christians for a while, is the difference between Zachariah's response and Mary's response. They both have this, this immediate response of, well, that doesn't make sense. The angel comes to him and says, your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a child. God is good. He's going to redeem the world. Zachariah says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Don't you know, Mr. Gabriel, things here don't really work that way. Mary says, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, this does not make sense, Mr. Angel Man. But having pondered the passage for a while, I still think, especially given the angel's response, that there's a, there's a difference. Uh, the angel seems quite concerned about Zachariah's response and actually says to him, because you did not believe. Whereas Mary, by the time the angel's finished speaking, she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. All right, sign me up. Let's do this thing. And the more I thought about this, and I thought about human history and biblical history, I think Zachariah's response is actually the normal one. That people, especially believers perhaps, don't tend to respond to good news well. It's because we, as G.K. Chesterton have said, we have grown too old. Not in the sense of years, but sin and disbelief and the difficulty of believing and hoping in that which is too good to be true just have their effect over the course of years, like ossification in your bones. You just become less flexible, less, less hopeful 
become more steeped in the world we, we all know, where the TV news is reality, and we know how elections turn out. There's certain states like California and Washington that are always going to go one way, and there's other states like Nebraska that are always going to go the other way. And so if you're smart, you campaign in the purple states. And whoever wins a couple of those, they become president. That's how things work in the real world. We know that if you're going to advance, you need to check the boxes in certain places, go to certain stations, fill certain roles, and know the right people. We know how the real world works. We've learned how to get by with just enough, but not too much, because that's the way we're used to living. And so the accreted years of disappointment and unanswered longing and our own sin make us old. And we lose sight of the colors, the bright colors that my friend saw. When I was younger, I can't believe I'm going to use this illustration. MTV launched a TV show called The Real World. I guess it's still on. Perhaps they called it The Real World because it was the very first reality TV show. For the first time, instead of having a script and actors in a sitcom, we just got to watch real people live out real life. And then a few years later, the Hollywood script writers went on strike and the sitcoms went off the air, and, and so did the real world. What? Who knew that the real world had script writers? And it turns out there's actually nothing real about the real world. That where else in the real world do you get seven beautiful people in one house with nothing to do but to fight with each other? And there's always one religious conservative who's really strange. And then you get a bunch of script writers to take this hours and hours and hours of footage and somehow cut and paste that thing into a meaningful story. Just like there's nothing real about that real world, I think for most of us, the world that you think is the real world is not really the real world. I said earlier, the real world is the world where there's a Father in heaven who made the world well, who loves to see the sun rise and made the trees with his own hands, and it's no big deal for him to, for old people to have babies and wars to cease and for himself to become a person and establish a kingdom that will have no end and bring peace and justice on earth forever. Do you not feel the tension of the sorts of things that we say at Christmas in these Christmas songs, peace on earth, an everlasting kingdom? That is not, that is not the way the world works, is it? Or is it? There's something in these dreams, these hopes, these gospel messages that is, as we say, too good to be true. And yet the very statement itself, too good to be true, carries with it an assumption about what truth really is. Doesn't it? What if the gospel really is that true? Well, how is it that Mary responded so well. Because having meditated on this for a while and searching the scriptures, I can only think of two people in the Bible who actually responded well to good news. Because Abraham doesn't. 
God says, I'll give you land, and Abraham says, well, a famine came along, so we're going to leave the land. I'll go to Egypt, and I'm afraid, so I'll give my wife away. Because we know how things really work here. And Jacob received a dream, but he knew it wasn't really that real. He was going to deceive his parents to make sure that he got it. And on and on and on and on through the biblical history, except for two people I can think of who responded well. David and Mary. So I wanted to take a look at those two people and just just surmise for a little bit maybe what happened in their life that they might hear the message and be ready to believe that the unreal world is actually the real world. And just to make sure you don't hear me wrong, this is, this is not a salvation or not salvation issue. Abraham was pretty saved, I think, and Jacob and Zechariah for that matter. The, priest, the angel doesn't even give up on Zechariah. He still gets to participate in the message, but somehow there's something better, there's something more healthy about being ready to be in a place where you can actually believe that the unreal world is the real world. And here's what I noticed. Here's what I think. And back up for a second. So the message that came to David, David becomes king in Israel. The Lord takes him from following behind sheep to put him on the throne of Israel. And David says to the prophet Nathan, I've arrived. I am the king. And it dawned on me that I have a house, but God doesn't have a house. He's still living in a tent. I want to build God a house. And the prophet Nathan says, good idea. And then Nathan goes away and he has a dream. A message from the Lord. And he comes back to David the next day and he says, this is what the Lord says. I've been living in a tent for a long time. I've never asked anyone to build me a house. I was the one who took you from following behind sheep and made you a king and prince among my people. And here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a son, a descendant who will come after you, and I will establish him on your throne, and he will be to me as a son. And he will rule, and I will establish his kingdom forever, that he might bring peace and justice on the earth. And you can take a look at it later if you want. It's in 2 Samuel 7. And David's response is basically, awesome, let's do that. And most of my life, I've kind of read that and thought, whoa, dude, that's a little bit presumptuous. But no, I think he's the one who had it right. And what else do we know David for? If not for being the writer of the Psalms. At least 70 of the 150 psalms that we have are written by David. The man loved to worship. When the ark was brought into Israel, into Jerusalem, finally to rest, David got off his throne, ran down through the streets, joined the ark, and went dancing in front of the ark to the streets in such a profound, dramatic way, his wife was terribly embarrassed. And the Lord was pleased. Because David loved to worship. He loved to be in the Lord's presence. He loved to call out and sing songs and write them. He wrote a lot of them. And I've noticed in my life when I've passed through seasons where I love to worship, I love the gospel more and I believe more. I'm more of the sort of person that I wish I was. More the sort of person that our fathers in the gospel became 
as they walked with him over the years, the soft, humble, trusting man that Abraham and David and Mary and Zachariah ended up to be in the end. Worship is, as Presbyterians say, a means of grace. So I invite you this holiday season to practice, to enjoy worship. To try and really connect with the words we sing here, Sunday mornings, and elsewhere. If you're embarrassed, find a closet, sing by yourself, in the car. I love singing in the car. Those people who stare at me, I don't really ever see them again anyway, so it doesn't matter. And try writing a song. I'm really serious. Isaac Watts, one of the most famous hymn writers of all time. How many, how many Isaac Watts hymns do you think we really know? Probably, I guess the number is about six. But I read somewhere that he wrote well over 600. Which meant to me that 594 of them were good but not good enough to kind of stand the test of time. It takes a lot of practice to crank out some good hymns. So if you sit down this afternoon or this week and you want to write a hymn of love to Christ and you get two words in and you're like, this is not good. Just, just, just tell that voice. to. That's not the point. The point is that you're developing a love for your Savior, that you're meditating on the things that he has done, that you're training your soul to believe that the unreal world is the real world. And that through worship and the singing and writing of songs and the drawing near of him, that you might become alive, that you might, as G.K. Chesterton suggests, become young again to see the color of the world. And then I thought about Mary. And she writes a song. And her song is filled with scripture. Her song is filled with allusions and quotations and references and thoughts to the Old Testament. Sorry, guys, my solutions are really boring. If you were looking for something new and novel... I'm always hoping I can find something really exciting, some, some sort of like tool that's not something basic like worship and read the Bible. But then that's what I find over and over again, that David worshipped and Mary read the scriptures. I know that she was inspired by the Holy Spirit when she wrote this song, but the Holy Spirit uses means and personality, and I have to believe if she wrote a song like this with that many references to Psalm 107 and Psalm 110 and... 2 Samuel 7 and every other scripture that she references, she probably spent a lot of time reading those stories. Because those are stories of the real, unreal world. There are the stories where old people have children. Where Moses, the murderer and the loser, becomes a leader of people. And Abraham finds a family. And Mary gets to participate in the birth of God himself. If there's something about reading over and over again and taking in and meditating on and digesting and chewing on those stories and those scriptures that keeps you alive and young, 
I'm a pastor. It's my job to do that kind of stuff. And I can tell you, the more time I spend here, the more I learn that the weeks that I don't do that, I am a dry, crusty, angry person. And the weeks that I do take the time to stop and rest, I find rest and joy in the Holy Spirit and hope becomes real and life becomes new. And I, for that minute at least, become young again. This last summer, I got to do a wedding. And then two weeks later, I got to go to a wedding, which from the standpoint of a young pastor was awesome because I got to take notes on how it's really done. We passed through Seattle on our vacation, and my pastor from college uh, was marrying a friend of mine. And the course of his message, he said, I'm going to tell you the story of the whole Bible in ten minutes. And he talked about how the beginning, the Bible begins with a wedding. God made everything, the colorful plants and the trees, and Adam and Eve, and brought them together. It began with a wedding, and it was good. And the Bible ends with a wedding. When the church comes in and is married to Christ. And he said, this is so important. Because either history has an author, or it doesn't. And if it does, that means that history began with a wedding and it's going to end with a wedding and your wedding has oh so much significance. That everything has significance because there is one who is and he made and he's making new and he's working in your life. And he said, here's what that means. He said, this couple today, standing here today, is filled with hope and enthusiasm and life and excitement for their life together. And they will not always feel the way they feel today. And just like you did, we all laughed. I laughed. And then he said, here's what I'm telling you. If there's a God who was, and he came to dwell among us, and the world begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding, what that means is what these people feel today is more real than what they will experience for the next 40 or 50 years. This is the real thing. That level of joy, that level of hope. And your mission for the rest of your lives is to remember today and to believe again that it's possible for that to be the real you and for that God to be the real God. My friends, perhaps for myself, most of all, but for all of us this Christmas season, uh, I really desire for us to read the scriptures, to worship, to pray, to take whatever it takes to believe again that that world, the world of the day of your wedding, the world where Christ is born and angels deliver good news, is not just the world that that might be in a movie or a dream or in a fairy tale, but that we are actually living, living the real thing. Let's pray.